1: Hello, and welcome to The Break, the podcast bringing you content to sports fans at a time when we are deprived of live action. In this episode, I'll be speaking to arguably the game's greatest ever player, Ronnie O'Sullivan, talking about moments that shaped his career. And there he is, in the middle of lockdown, looking like he's coping with life. It's Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie, how are you? Yeah, good, Andy, i too bad. How are you coping with lockdown? actually been all right, really, you know. It's a bit
0: tough for us at moments. We haven't actually got a kitchen. We're just making do with what we can. We've got our doors getting delivered in five days. Hopefully, our straws can deliver in another three weeks. And our kitchen another four or five weeks after that. So, not ideal, but um, it's all right, you know.
1: Do you want me to send a few pizzas around soon?
0: Oh, no, I'm still eating well, mate. I'm still eating well. I've oh, got good. a couple of stoves down there. Uh, I've, got, I've got a ninja cooker, which is fantastic. Um, not being paid to advertise that, by the way, but it is a great <laughs> bit of the cooking equipment. Um, you know, and we're just making do. It's like I know, I'm in preparation for the jungle, mate.
1: <laughs> one day you'll be doing that. Listen, I was shy.
0: speaking to Phil Taylor the other day, and he said, he said, I've been in social isolation for the last 35 years. And I thought, you know what? As a snooker player, you are. You don't talk to no one. You're kind of stuck yeah. in a room.
1: My whole life's been, like, isolated. How are you, how are you dealing with not practicing, then? Because you can't go out to a club oh, at actually, all.
0: that's the best part about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, normally, I need to find a good excuse for myself to start convince myself to not go and practice. I like the car, needs cleaning, got to do the garden, I shouldn't really get to the gym by then, I'm like, too late to go.
1: Now, I've got like, the best excuse in the world. When was the last time you picked up a cue and actually hit a few balls in? Shoot at. Wow. Well, listen, I'm excited about today's podcast because uh, we're going to talk about big matches that shape your career. And of course, we'll start with the big one. Um, when you became UK champion at the age of 17 beating Stephen Hendry 10-6 in the final. I mean, it's an incredible achievement. Sometimes we just brush over it for a 17-year-old to win the second biggest comp on the, on the toys. It's quite bizarre. I don't think it will ever happen again. Hendry held the, um, uh, the title before you as youngest ever winner of a major, and that was at 18 years, nine months, and you beat that. So when you look back now, can you quite believe that you achieved so much at such a young age, Ron?
0: Uh, in some ways, yeah, I wasn't surprised. Um, I thought I'd have done a lot more to be honest with you because when I first turned pro like I didn't really know how good the top pros were. You only watch it on T V and sometimes you get like the highlights. You now when you watch the highlights they only show you the best bit. So you now once I started playing the top pros and I think my, my first real sort of insight uh into playing someone like Stephen Hendry was the tournament before the UK championship. That's in Dubai. And he beat me six two, but I come off the table and basically up. The reason why I maybe didn't win or I even get a bit closer was because I showed him just a bit too much respect. But he made, you know, he gave me chances. I just didn't take them, you know. And, um, I think when I went into the next match, I kind of had a bit more belief that if I was to get them chances, as long as I took them, um, you yeah, know, there, there, there shouldn't be no reason why, you know, I, I couldn't compete with him, you know. So, but obviously the pressure was all on Stephen and no one knew me at the time. So that, that also helped.
1: Yeah, and what was it like as well? Because you didn't just beat Stephen Hendry, but you beat Stephen Hendry, seven times champion of the world, right in the middle, if you like, of that 10-year domination. So for a young kid coming through to play what turned out to be one of the game's greatest ever players, of course, that argument will run and run between you and him. But were you fearless going into it because you had nothing to lose?
0: Yeah, listen, it's it's, it's, it's so much harder when you're playing someone that's younger than you because Stephen was there, the one to be shot at. So... From that moment onwards, we had me, Williams and Higgins trying to just keep coming at him. And every time he beat us, it only made us stronger. But every time we would beat him, it would make him a bit weaker. Um, that's, just, that's just the natural thing, you know. So for me, now, past the place, someone like Higgins. It probably wouldn't put so much of a dent in him. But for him to get beat by a younger player, it would really like, you know, maybe put more of a dent in him. So it's sort of, it was a harder, harder for Henry than it was for me.
1: In uh, that was, of course, your first triple crown win. Your next one, you had to wait two more years. So you became master champion, beat John Higgins in the final, nine three. What do you remember about that one, Ron?
0: Um, I, but I remember that I was lucky to get through in the first round. I was playing John Parrott who was a bit of a bogeyman. And I think uh, the first seven times that I played him, he beat me. So every time I had to play him, I just thought, oh, you know, this is the one guy that I just never could could could, could get near. And uh, he had a straight blue in the middle to beat me, 5-4, he missed it, I cleared up and then I um, go on to win the tournament. And, yeah, John Higgins, who is my probably my biggest rival um, out of all of them, um, was fantastic.
1: I'll tell you what was interesting, We're looking back at certain YouTube clips, and I saw um, a video of you sat next to Doogie Donnelly, I think it was on the BBC. Doogie Donnelly, oh yeah, I remember Doogie. you got a trophy in your hand. And um, he said, as he's, as he's signing off, he said, I wonder how many other finals we'll have between these two players, Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins. Did you think at the time when you beat John in that final as a young kid that you two would dominate snooker in the way you did?
0: No, I, I always thought John would be one to dominate snooker, break Stephen Hendry's records and, uh, and do all that sort of stuff. And uh, so for me, John Higgins was the best player that I'd ever played. I, I put him above me and, and Williams. Um, so i Higgins me then Williams so you know everyone had massive respect to Higgins so you know yeah I I knew we'd play a lot um, but uh, I thought Higgins would be the one to go and do all
1: the records so you won your first Triple Crown when you were um, 17 in 93 you turned pro in 92 obviously then you won the Masters in 95 but you had to wait to 2001 to win your first world title why was that why was the wait so long between the last tournament we just talked about the masters and the first world championship you won
0: because I, I just started partying um, really and the worst thing about the world championships every other one the tournament season started kind of thought started from september and it finished in may um so i had to kind of curb my drinking my partying, in september to may but then come the world championship because it's the last tournament i used to think i was having a bad session i thought as soon as this tournament's over i've got three months to go and party so, if things weren't going too well, I think, sweet, this is get out of here so for five six years, maybe from nineteen ninety five to to when I won it literally my my focus was on the sooner this is over, the quicker I can get out and have some come with
1: my friends and not have to be drug tested did you um <laughs> did you did you feel so there was a, there was a monkey on your back before you won it? The reason I ask that is because from the minute Judd Trump broke onto the scene, everyone was saying it's a matter of when he becomes world champion, not if. And yeah. He had to wait quite a long time, probably longer than, of course, most would have expected. Mm. Did you feel as though you had that monkey on your back, that everyone expected you to become maybe the youngest champion or a 22-year-old world champion? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And when it comes off, it's like a most unbelievable feeling. Because you finally, you know, like if you win it once, you know, it's doesn't matter if you don't really win it again because at least you put your name on that trophy and I'm sure Chadagan will going and win it a few few more times. But um the the monkey off the back is a huge and that just allows you to go and play now. You know, and just sort of um just a matter of clocking up as many tournaments and titles as you can get.
1: Did it make a difference to you in that final that John had already become world champion? Did that give you a little bit more determination to make it one or if you like?
0: Yeah, I think seeing John win it and Mark Williams win it before me kinda of made me think, Oh, you know, if um if I was to never win it, I feel a little bit like I've, you know, I was the loser out of the three in many ways. So, you know, they was always inspiring me. When I see that, you know, Higgins win it, then Williams, I thought I have to win it. You know, I've got to try and do all I can. You know, and I took my game apart. I tried to change my game because Sheffield was different. Like, you know, it's a different type of tournament, and I just felt like I had too many inconsistencies in my game. I was either really good or really poor, and on them poor sessions, they were the ones that were killing me. So I decided to try and. Maybe be a little bit less reckless, tighten up my technique, and just become a bit more steady. And, um, and steady wins the world championships, believe it or not. You don't mm-hmm. have to play brilliant. You know, it's nice to play have one brilliant session in each match. But if you're steady, if you have one brilliant session in in each match and steady for the rest of the other session, you win. You know, if you're if you're a top quality player, even if you're a mid rank player, you know, that sometimes
1: it's good enough. I want to move on from one end of the scale, of your first world championships, to the other end. Um, yeah. Your fifth world title, where you beat um, Barry Hawkins eighteen twelve in the final, yeah, and you won it um, after taking a year out as well. When you when you came back from that year, did you honestly think I'm in good shape? I've got a chance of winning it, or was it? I know it's such a cliche, but was it every match one at a time? Uh,
0: no, I never thought I'd win it. Um, I've never won the world championships, then won it the following year ever. So. Um, but when I got on the practice table, because I played so much snooker the year before, I kind of felt great immediately as soon as I got on the practice table. But practice and matches are totally different. So obviously I had no match practice. You can only get that by playing matches. So I did feel that each match, parts of my game got stronger. By the final, I think I kind of hit the highest point, you know, where I, you know, I was playing at a very, very high level up until then. Areas my game was good, but you know every area wasn't great. So I kind of had to manage my game a little bit. But come the final, I didn't need to manage it. I just kind of went out there and played as aggressive as I
1: could. So I was looking at your results that got you into the final. You were only really tested out in the second round against <coughs> Ali Carter 38. was probably the closest match you had. So when you got into the final, were you feeling in really good shape?
0: No, to be honest, you, all the way up until the final, I just felt like I played alright. You know, I didn't play great. There was moments where I thought it was okay, but. There were moments where I felt vulnerable and I thought, you know, I lost a few matches and uh, games that I wouldn't normally have lost. And I thought, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the fans that probably could possibly stop me from winning this, this tournament. But when I got to the final, I was, I was winning them games. There were like little turning points in each match. And, and by the final, them turning points, I was, I was on them. You know, I was all over him like a rash. So whenever he made a mistake, I'd, I'd, I'd win two or three frames off of it. I mean, you can only do that when you're in good shape.
1: What do you remember about becoming Masters champion for the a record-breaking seventh time? You beat Joe Perry in the final 10-7. We of course were all lucky enough to be there for Team Eurosport. It was a a great night. It must have been so much to you.
0: Yeah, again that was one of my my hardest wins. You know, not just just meant the mental battle really. I remember I had hip problems as well, <laughs> uh, and I couldn't really get any spin out of white balls. So a lot of the shots that I usually like to play, I couldn't play. You know. And, when I was screwing back, I wasn't sure how far the white was going to be coming back. So a lot of it was like guesswork and, and under pressure as well. That made it such a horrendous sort of, it's a horrible experience. It's a bit like a Formula One driver going out there and he's got two laps to go and he's got no, no tread on his tyres. You know, he's being chased down by the next guy behind. But, you know it puts you under a lot of pressure. So yeah, that was a tough, tough game, but obviously great to do to, uh, to get it to seven masters. And, um, yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic.
1: And for the seventh master, of course, you won the UK seven times now. Big celebrations. You beat Mark Allen 10-6 in the final. I've been talking to Jimmy and Neil about this and one of the things that jumps off the page for me, I remember, is you, after you won it, you sat in your chair and poured a bottle of water over your head, Ron. That was quite strange.
0: Yeah, no, just, you know, you, you get to the point in your career where you, you think, like, how many more victories are going to come? And there was an element of, you know, um, through that match where the, the crowd got a little bit red, little, little section of the crowd and I was so pumped up that once I finally got over the winning line just. Sort like it all just come out of me, and um so the water overhead was just my way of just going. Off. I, mean, I just didn't care, you know. I broke I broke Hendry's record for the majors, which was mm. for me as an important record. You know, that's the only, one of the only records that stays the same. You know, every you only get three shots at the event, so that's a real barometer of you know of who's who the greats are. So I think the majors was, was was great for me. You know, I might not break his seven world titles, but break his major record was for me, was
1: um, amazing. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of people may may not necessarily realise, but seven wins, and you also got to another final, is that right? I think Selby beat you yeah. in 2016, so eight finals in the UK, that's quite incredible. Yeah,
0: eight finals in the UK, I think there's 13 finals in the Masters.
1: Yeah. I think
0: I've had finals in the Welsh. Yeah, so I've had some, I've had some uh, yeah, made a lot
1: of major finals. Out of the ones we've spoken about, and I'm including the first three, and the ones we've just talked about, which one are you most am pleased about when you look back and reminisce.
0: I think my three best victories, um, remember, was 2012 World Champs, 2013 World Champs, and I enjoyed the 2014 Masters where I beat Selby in the final. Mm. I, think I played really well there to beat someone like Selby convincingly as I did. Um, shows that I must have been playing some really good stuff. And-
1: In this episode, I'm talking to Rocket Ronnie O'Sullivan about moments that shaped his career. Uh, Ronnie, I want to talk to you about 147s. And of course, I have to um, talk about the one that was the fastest one ever. You've made 15 in your career, but the one against Mick Price, which took five minutes and 20 seconds, was just absolutely frightening. Did you ever think you could do a maximum in five minutes, 20? It's just ridiculous to even suggest that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, really, yeah. I mean, uh, I no, mean, I was a lot faster then, a lot younger, um, much more played. I still play from instinct, but for men it was just sort of, uh, yeah, I just think it was just youth and enthusiasm and all that sort of stuff. So, um, oh, I know I wouldn't be able to do that now because I'm a different player to what I was then. So, yeah, and it's still like one of the fantastic moments
1: in snooker, I suppose. Have you seen the split screen someone's made of you making your 147? And Edwin making a break of 12, ironically against you at the World Championships. And it's the same time. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah, it's quite funny. <laughs> it is, but it is amazing. You, you touched on the fact that you were a lot, not slower now, but you were so much quicker then. Was it because you were fearless, because you were acting more on instinct back then? What do you put it down to, man?
0: No, it was just, the, I think sometimes the faster you go, the more mistakes you make, but the less you have to think. But the faster you are, the less deliberate you are. So I, I, I changed my game. Uh, I started seeing a coach, I think about 1992,000, 2000, and I wanted to be a bit more, just a bit more steady, and I had to slow everything down, I had to slow my cue action down I had to, you know, just get much more of a system into my game so I'd become a bit more robotic um, I didn't want to become like a robot but I always looked at it on a scale of 1 to 10, I was at 0 10 was being a robot if I could get to somewhere around about 6 or 7, mm. just to balance me out a little bit, that would give me a much better chance to do well in the world championships, which is obviously it's a marathon and not a sprint the most tournaments but one session, you get up for it, you know, and you know, you're, you're in and out before you know it. Whereas the World Championships you found the same opponent two, three times. Sometimes it's about being efficient and just kinda of just keep just chipping away and chipping away and at some point you pull away from your opponent. but it's the person the most consistent. So I, I had to change my game. By changing my game it obviously slowed me down a little bit because we were trying to cut out all the, the little reckless mistakes that were costing me matches um for our sessions at the World Championships.
1: I have to talk to you, when we're talking about great breaks you've made, even though it wasn't a ton, it was close, it was a 92. I have to talk to you about your break um, against Ali Carter in the final of the 2012 World Championships. Three all, so it was early on in the match. Mm. There were about four or five balls on the cushion. Um When you came to the table, I don't know if you remember, but you just missed three separate chances, mm. quite relatively easy for someone like you. And as you got to the table, Willie Thorne in commentary said, well, well, be lucky if he makes a 20 here. And then you went on to clear the table. Four or five balls I mentioned on the cushion. It's, everyone talks ri- quite rightly about Higgins is 69 to beat Jimmy in the semi-final of the worlds because that was a great break for so many reasons. Of course, you know, the winning ball going in, he gets to the final, etc. But your break, your 92 against Carter, is, I think, up there with some of the best breaks of snooker I've ever seen. What What do you remember about it, Ron?
0: Um, if, when I watch it back, I sometimes think, why did I play that shot? Why did I do that? Why didn't I just bust them open? It would have been a lot easier. But there's times when you're playing and you just feel like you've got the cue ball under such good control that you think, I don't want to take a risk. I'll pop the blue, get on that red, pop the red, get up high on the blue. And, but it's all like you just I had the confidence that I was going to play every shot perfect. I didn't whenever I was out of position I was able, always able to recover the shot. And obviously like watching it back I think surely there was an easier way about going back clearing that table but I get why I chose to pick, you know, one ball at a time. Yeah, I know, listen, when you're playing that well and feeling that good, the pockets look massive, the, the, the table shrinks, you know, it's like playing on a pool table. So, you know, you, you just play each shot that's in front of you and you know, at the
1: time it just felt like quite quite easy. When when I'm watching it as a fan, as every ball goes down, I'm thinking if he clears the table, my goodness. Are you thinking that as a player when you're on the base?
0: No, not at all. I, I always go to the table thinking, not always because some days you're just not seeing it great. But most of the time, I just go to the table and I just think I want to clear up here, you know. And that, sometimes that's why we I take shots on that the commentators might think you should play safe, but in my head, I'm thinking no, this is you know if you're to win tournaments and be a serial winner, mm. you can't give up the table they're easy you have to kind of dominate the table sometimes you've got to, to take on what's considered a high risk shot but to, to some of the top players they're, they're, they're not as high risk as they would be for maybe some of the lower ranked players so you know you, um, I've always had that mentality to try and kill the game off one visit as many times as you can
1: you certainly did that as well of course in the Welsh Open in the final um, to win the final by knocking in a one four seven against Ding Junhui. um that had so many great moments in it, including one of the greatest shots we've seen, certainly on a, a maximum. That red you played left-handed, the last red to get on the black, the white coming between the pink and black. What do you remember about that whole um, final, and also that one four seven?
0: Yeah, I remember like obviously playing Ding in the final. I love playing Ding because he just plays the right shots. You know, very he isn't going to like power you off the table. You know, he plays the right game, so he's quite a you know type of player you enjoy playing, and. um... Yeah, I remember getting a good start in the in the in the afternoon, playing I was playing very, very well. I remember, you know, all through that tournament I was like hardly lost a frame. I think in the Masters I lost about four frames the whole tournament and then in this one I think I lost about five or six frames through the whole tournament. So in two tournaments I lost ten frames. I was absolutely flying. So um I just remember coming into the evening, he started off with a couple of centuries and thought, Oh, you know, make a bit of a game of it and then I won the next and then I just remember getting left this long red and got in and you know just started just start picking ball off the ball knowing that obviously I was a difficult red along the cushion so there wasn't so much pressure on me to get the 147 because I thought well you know it's highly unlikely that the time I get that red that I'll be able to get there and get back up for the black so but when I did when the red did go left-handed and it come down as black, I was like whoa hello this
1: is on. I've spoken to you many times about that red mm. and you've you've told me that you've you potted it, you put gear on the white to bring it back and you're just hoping to get it near the black yeah. to give you a chance yeah. of potting it and getting on the yellow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I never played to kind of like come anywhere near between the pink or I just anywhere down there I do. Just pot the red as long as I've got some sort of shot in the black and um, that'd be great. But obviously, you know, I'm, you know you've know, you got an idea that it's going to come, you know, you're not, you don't want it to go near the cushion or you don't want it to kind of like now, so you're aiming into an area, really. So I knew I would be too far away from the black, but the white landed, you couldn't have picked it up and there better with your hand.
1: Could you've got that much gear on the white if you're using the rest? No, no, no
0: absolutely not. Nah, mm-hmm. nah. No. No. Well, you could, but you would probably miss the pot. Right. So to be able to screw that in and get the accuracy um, that was needed, it was a lot easier doing it with
1: the in your hand. Uh, Let's talk about other uh, notable breaks that you've made. Uh, A 1-4-6 against Barry Pinches at the 2016 Welsh Open. Now, let me ask you this: I've seen it many times. I've seen it coming into this interview today. You took the 14th red, Mm. right? Mm. And then uh, you potted the black, and then you you felt a little bit, I think, too low on the red to come down for the Mm. black. So it left you no option but to take the pink. Now, is that what happened, or were you always going to get. A one four six in that break. Yeah, there's no way they'd get a the one four seven. <laughs> if there too, no chance. So if you would have been, if you would have, if there would have been a big prize for the one four seven, and you'd have still fallen too short on that red, you'd have tried to put the red and go round the ball area. hundred
0: percent. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even need to go around. Right I just screwed it in a little bit. So i been yeah. on the black.
1: Yeah, but you did it. You did it. Was it against Ross Ballman in the UK Championships? You knocked in a one four six against him as well.
0: Yeah, I done it there as well. Done it there. Yeah, and I done it with Ding in the World Championships. I think I had three 1, 4, 6. No?
1: Yeah, that could have been maxes, and that doesn't bother you. You're not adding to your list of maximums. Ah,
0: no. I don't care, mate. Okay,
1: yeah. you know, you know what was great talking of one when you were playing Mark King, 2010 World Open. Yeah, that was a beauty. After red, I mean, it's just incredible. You couldn't write that script after red and the black. You asked, I think it was Jan Bahas, the referee, what's the prize for a one four seven? Yeah,
0: then to get it as well.
1: Ah, yeah, brilliant. That was just that was incredible. We. You're asking him for that reason because if there wasn't a big prize you wouldn't have taken it on? I knew it wasn't a big prize but I then also knew that if
0: I was to say uh, there should be a bigger prize for 147 that, you get people going oh you know you're ungrateful you're this, you're that. So I just thought what's the best way to, to illuminate it? I thought right just go for the 147 and um, ask the ref what's what the prize is. Once he tells me it's that I go alright oh, I made a 140 do you? Um, you know that's just it's just this, this makes it much more of an interesting talking point, you
1: know? Will you ever get to a moment where you refuse that black and just walk off? I would
0: have done it, but it was Jan it, yeah, sort of uh, talking into doing it. Um, but, yeah, Um
1: yeah. I'm glad he did. Yeah. I'm glad he did. Mm. You must have got a lot of satisfaction when you made that 1,000th tonne to win the Players' Championship 10 against Neil Robertson. Again, I was watching that back, and what, what stood out for me is when you made the century, the clapping started and it continued throughout the rest of the frame when you're clearing up the colours. You, you know, your face, your your expression, you just lit up. You must have enjoyed every minute of that. That must have meant a hell of a lot to you, Ron.
0: Yeah, it was a great moment. Um, fantastic moment, you know, especially to do it at the the Guild Hall. Well on the first my first UK championships, you know, it's such a great playing playing venue at the Guild Hall is. You know, you always play some of your best snooping venues like that. So the win the title and then make the century in the last round against Neil Robertson, who was a fantastic player. For me, it was like, you know, if you're going to do the thousandth century, um, that was the perfect place to do it. So, yeah, I was buzzing, you know, the crowd were excited. And, you know, one day they didn't know whether to carry on playing or let them carry on clapping. And, you know, I thought, sort of just keep fighting the balls. If they're enjoying it, I'm enjoying it. So it was a, it was a good moment.
1: Yeah, it was a great moment in Snooker. Uh, let's talk about controversial moments in Snooker that you've been involved in. The obvious one that jumps off the page is your match against Stephen Hendry in the 2006 quarterfinal of the UK Championships, 4-1 down, miss a ball, shake his hand and walk off.
0: Yeah. I, to be honest with you, I wasn't having a lot of problems at home um, with my family life and stuff like that. and I just didn't even want to be near a snooker table, you know, but I had to go to play because it was obviously not work. But I just wasn't in the right frame of mind at all. A um, few matches before that, I just wanted to shake the guy's hand and walk out, you know, I just didn't want to be in that environment. Um, I wanted to play but obviously there was a lot of stuff going on in my head that um that was upsetting really. So that you know, that that, that could have happened two or three the previous four matches to to Hendry. And I just was out there playing Hendry and I just felt, you know, I just well, I'm not gonna win this match. I'm not I'm not I'm not feeling it. I don't really wanna be here. And uh, I just want to get out of here. So, you know, for me, it's just sitting down and off I went.
1: Have you ever felt like that since, Ron?
0: Nah. No, nah, there's times I'm sitting there thinking I don't want to. You know, I'd rather be at home or, you know, I'm not enjoying, probably had a bit too much travelling, but I would never, never do that again, you know.
1: Uh, let's talk about some funnier moments in your career. Uh, the streaker in the final of the Masters in 97 against Davis at the fantastic venue, the Conference Centre in Wembley. Um, a game that you went on to lose, You know, I've been talking about this actually in great detail, you went 2-0 up two tons. then she came on, and then the match sort of turned a little bit. What do you remember about, <laughs> this is going to sound a bit loaded, this question, what do you remember about her? <laughs> yeah, it's quite bizarre, really. It's obviously like, you know, they're playing. The weird
0: thing was, I was sitting opposite it, so I, I actually see her taking her clothes off. I said, what's she doing now? And then she kind of like run down, she's done like a couple of laps, round the table, but I think she was waiting for somebody to come and like get her off. But no one would. So halfway through, I think she was feeling a little bit silly, thinking like <laughs> I, think, I think she was looking for someone to come and take her away and cover her up and let her get out. of There, she she'd come to do what she obviously came to do. Um, yeah, it was it was quite funny. You know? it, was. Quite funny.
1: it was. I'd say it was. I'd say it was very funny as well. Uh, Barnsley, 2017,
0: English yeah, Open. Yeah. You
1: yeah. know what I'm going to say, don't you? Yeah, you're clearing up, and then yeah. an old lady walks on. How she how she managed to dodge security, I still don't know. And then you carry on clearing the table, and then you give you a cue to pop the final black, which she sadly rattled. But that was just barking, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was funny. You
0: know, obviously, like you could just tell she was no threat. You know what I mean? And all the security guards come running out, and it was gonna really laugh. Like, well, I hope they don't grab her to the floor. That could, like kill her or something. I went, now hold on, slow down, slow down. He let her have a shot. I gave her a shot to try. She was happy. She took, took the shot and, and off
1: she went. So yeah, it was quite funny. There there are there are some, some great things you've been involved with. You know, the woman coming around as we just talked about, you know, the streaker. But also, I remember I've, I remember matches where you've you've looked down at your shoes and your shoelaces are undone so you just put your foot on the table and do your shoelaces up or you've played matches with your trainers on or you've borrowed um, Mike Ganley's shoes to play a match. L- lots of moments involving your feet, Ron. Um, I like the fact that you just, whatever seems natural, you just do. You know, if your shoelace is undone, up comes your foot, stick it on the table and do it up. Do you think people are bothered by the way sometimes you act in and around a snooker table or not?
0: Um, sort of, Some maybe, some maybe don't, you know, but for me, it's just a bit of wood It's a snooker table. I'm very comfortable with the equipment. I'm very comfortable with planning anything, you know, as long as I've got my cue, my chalk, you know, it's just, um, for me, it's just, I'm used to this sort of stuff where people maybe look at, "Oh, it's a beautiful bit of wood. You need to respect it." And you know, it's a gentleman's game, look It's a snooker table with six pockets on it, and you know, um, it's my best friend. So my best friend doesn't mind if I put my shoe on shoe on. And you know, we've got a lot of good, we've got a great connection. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm never bothered by that, but um, I'm, I'm sure other people do, and they're entitled to have their opinion.
1: And what were Mike Ganley's shoes like? Would you put them on again?
0: Uh. That was all right, but they got a bit hot after a while because there wasn't leather sole shoes. So I thought I couldn't do like maybe a couple of
1: frames. But anything other than that, my feet were on fire. Listen, before we go, we've got 10 quickfire questions for you. So you can either answer in one word or elaborate as much as you want. OK, so the first one, who's the best player you ever played against? John Egan. OK, a player you wish you could have played against? Joe Davis. Your most difficult opponent ever at any level? John Egan. Best match you ever played in was what? Uh, Hendry in the European final. All right. Tell us a bit
0: more about that. Uh, I remember playing Hendry in that. We were both playing pretty good. And I beat him 9-6. But I beat the heist break three times. He had about four or five centuries. He had three or four centuries. It was just one-visit snooker for the
1: whole whole game. Uh, best snooker venue for atmosphere? I'm, I'm guessing there's a few here. Goffs in Ireland. Oh, really? What, more than Germany and more than yeah. the Conference Centre? That, uh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's that's the one that's sort of a little bit like the one in Black Poison. It's all round and everyone's sitting over yeah. you. Yeah. Ten times
0: better than
1: Blackpool. Oh, wow. Okay. Good answer. Um, your best ever performance was where? Probably
0: say when I beat Ricky Warden at the Masters. When I think for six frames, he never pocketed the ball. And I made two or three centuries. Yeah, that was, that was
1: all right. I was there for that one. Uh, your biggest regret in snooker is what, if you've got one, Ronnie? I don't really have any regrets you know
0: I look back at my career and I think I've overachieved or so yeah no, I can't have any regrets I, I maybe a regret where I had five years where I never devoted myself to snooker um, from 1995 to 2000 so I lost a lot of time there I lost a lot of time from 2005 to 2007 I don't think I won a tournament or a ranking tournament for like 32 months uh Again, stuff going on off the table. And then I think 2009 to 2011, again, I had stuff going off So really, I've had nine years where I was mentally wasn't ready to, to play, to compete, to win. So I have a professional career that's been how long? 27 years. I'd say nine of them I sabotaged, you know.
1: Uh, from the minute you picked up a cue, how many cues have you had and which one was your favorite? Um, I
0: probably had about four or five cues. Uh, the first one I had uh, was just a, the one from the sports shop, Howard queue. and then I got a Burrows and Watt queue, which was an old queue, which I used up until I don't know 1998 maybe. So I'd made a five minute 20 maxi with the Burrows and Watts, and then John Paris made me a cue to so try that out. I tried it out and I was playing so much better. Sh- more consistent was easier to play with. And I thought, lovely. So um, since then, um, I've probably had about three or four of different cues made by John Harris.
1: And you gave one away, didn't you, at the World Championships?
0: Yeah, I gave one away. Uh, yeah, because i was speaking to Ray Reardon. He always said to me, one-piece cues are the best. And I'd had a joint in this one. And it was the World Championships. So it was my last match of the season. So I thought, oh, I should put it in a cue box. i was going to give it away anyway. So i would just give it to a kid in the crowd. And, and I could just focus on trying to find a new
1: cue for myself. Nice. And just quickly, that cue that you made the quick max in five minutes twenty. Where's that cue now? I haven't got a clue. Did you give it away or?
0: Yeah, a mate of mine. I gave it away, and my mate of mine sold it in charity, and then a
1: couple of people bought
0: it and stuff like that. But I haven't seen it for ages.
1: Okay. Uh, what's your favourite ever shot? My
0: favourite ever shot probably has to be the left-handed red on the one four seven against in.
1: And the last question, Ronnie. Um, one thing you'd still like to achieve in your career would be what? Uh,
0: I'd I'd like to be able to play as many exhibitions. um, The public still want to see me play for the next 10 years. Um, I love snooker. I love playing. And the most fun parts of snooker for me now are working with Eurosport doing the exhibitions. So I get to feel free when I'm doing that. Yeah, so as long as I can keep doing the parts of the snooker that I enjoy, and, and I love playing for the fans and stuff like that. So it doesn't need to be on TV for me. So As long as the fans still want to see me playing till I'm around 55, um, I would love to still do that. A little bit like what Phil Taylor does now.
1: Well, I can vouch for every single snooker fan around the world. We all want you to play for at least 10 more years. Ron, listen, uh, it's been fascinating speaking to you. Um, thank you so much for your time. There's, gang, there's loads of these about on Eurosport and on iTunes. There's snooker podcasts, so make sure you go and watch as many as you can. But in the meantime, Ron, thanks so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Cheers, Andy. Thank you, mate. We'll see you again soon. For myself and Ronnie O'Sullivan, bye-bye for now.
0: Bye-bye, bye-bye. bye-bye.